Young Steve was driving with his dad in the car, and he wanted to contribute to the conversation. So at some point, he decided it would be helpful to say, well, based on scripture, money is the root of all evil. His dad, who is a pastor, said, the love of money is the root of all evil. The lesson there was, don't quote scripture if you're not going to quote scripture correctly. <laughs> that was the main lesson that Steve learned. But as I reflected uh, on that little moment, I think there's the importance of what I was accidentally saying there and what we can learn. So today we're talking about finance, especially as Christians, and how we ought to manage it, how we ought to think about it. Welcome back to Tesserai. I'm Steve, and we are thrilled to have you join us as we attempt to explore the integrated Christian walk in light of the ways it has been dismantled. Money is a part of life. One's interaction with money has so many implications on a quality of life. Uh, a young Steve learned in that story, Christians are not called to be fearful or, or, of, or hate money, but we are warned against loving and exalting it. I mean, it's not hard to love and want it, honestly, in this society. And it's one of those things that you can definitely love it even if you haven't had it, maybe especially if you haven't had it. As long as you have enough money, maybe you can live where you want, own what you want, travel where you want, maybe be with who you want, have the power, influence, and status that you want. So if we shouldn't love it or hate it, how ought we to manage it or engage with it? Today's episode is the first and hopefully a series about Christianity and finance. And while we anxiously wait to hear Bob's voice again, today I've got some different help. The simplicity of the gospel is a very important phrase that I've heard quite often. And uh, I have a simplicity of finance message. And it is, money is an incredible tool, but a terrible, terrible God. That's Matt. Matt leads data and analytics for wealth management, diversity, inclusion, and talent at Morgan Stanley. Most importantly, Matt is one of my long-term best friends, um, been a part of the friend group for a lot of years, and I'm so happy that he's on our podcast coming to us all the way live from New York. My philosophy on money is that money is a tool for three things. Number one, for personal care and development. Number two, for supporting loved ones and others in need. And number three, for making more money. That's true. Drew started Greenbook Insurance to help people understand how to manage their financial risk. Drew is happily married with three kids and is a nightmare to guard on the basketball court. It's also a pleasure to have him joining us. He's in the building today, so we actually get a little bit of, it's one of the rare times we get a guest to join us in studio, if you will. So I'm so happy that both of my brothers are with me today and happy to jump in. Um, now, I think it feels maybe a little too obvious to say that Christians are supposed to be generous. Uh, and maybe it seems like a no-brainer, so I think part of today's episode is wanting to unpack it. Uh, how do we be generous, and how does that generosity coexist with saving for a rainy day or being frugal and responsible stewards with what God has entrusted to us? Biblically, it's impossible to have this conversation without talking about the young rich man. The story of the rich man in Matthew 19, uh, Mark 10, and Luke 18, <clears throat> how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus says. What precedes this famous statement by Jesus is the rich man hearing that he should give his wealth away. He's done so much. Uh, he's, he's done all the, all the things that he's supposed to do as a follower of God for so long. And so when he hears this, um, that he needs to give away all that he has, 
he becomes very sad. And Jesus sees that and knows that the dude was hurt. And I think it'd be lazy to look at this and call this a proof text and say that uh, this is why Christians shouldn't or can't be rich. But how do you think this could apply to those Christians who do live very comfortably, those who are born into great wealth? Um, and so it kind of thinks the question, how rich should we be? Those questions and more we really want to hit today. Um, so for you guys, as just a little bit of background, whoever wants to start, tell me a little bit about how you started to get into money or um, uh, how you started to think about finance, maybe in a different way in which you grew up with it. So years ago, uh, one of my auto insurance clients called me with an interesting request. She needed help finding her mother's life insurance policy. So I, uh, you know, she was looking through her home. Um, searching through all her files, and she knew this policy absolutely existed, but she just didn't know where it was. Well, I told her, well, there is a resource that the Department of Insurance has. Each state has a Department of Insurance that is connected to all of the registered life insurance companies, all the insurance companies. And uh, what happens is if you're missing a policy, if you're the beneficiary, they can ping all these uh, insurance companies, and essentially, uh, if the policy exists, you will be notified. Hmm. Um, long story short, one day goes by, two days go by, uh, we come to grips with the reality that this policy absolutely did not exist. And in the insurance industry, the reality is, you know, things like this happens, you know, happen all the time. And if you're not careful, you can become uh, you know, develop a, you win some, you lose some mentality. But with this lady in particular, something struck me and I started asking the question, okay, well, why did she need this money? You know, was this life insurance policy, um, a financial legacy policy, uh, where, you know, it was going to take care of people's college education or maybe the down payment for a home? Um, was this policy, um, a final expense policy that was going to pay for a funeral and burial. Whatever the policy was for, we, we know that the lady was vulnerable, financially vulnerable, because instead of um, spending time, you know, celebrating the memory of her mother or mourning the loss of her mother, she was trying to find money to probably pay for a funeral. Um, and when you are not thoughtful, when you aren't careful, when you aren't planning, um, you know, when there are lapses in, in judgment around something as important as life insurance and finances, finance in general, you can come to a situation where you're financially vulnerable. And, um, this was in fact, part of the reason that I wanted to start Greenbrook, um, was to basically, um, develop infrastructure around telling people, Hey, these are some of the concerns that we should have, you know? When it comes to financial literacy, a lot of people are thinking about what I call the offensive side of finance, which is, you know, asset appreciation. Um, but there's a defensive end, too, that deals with um, managing your risk, uh, managing the, the risk of financial loss. And, um, and so that's uh, sort of my professional uh, contribution today. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. I think uh, 
even as even as you are saying that, I'm like, so many who who listen to our podcast uh, are on the end where they're not have probably not had insurance settled in 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 any probably in in many respects, you know. Uh, and then even for me, like in the past couple of years, having questions about figuring out uh, what life insurance is going to look like. Like, well, you would get it now, and the longer you wait, the longer you, A, don't have it, and then the longer, uh, the more expensive it's going to be as you get older. Right. And so there's so many reasons why you have to kind of be about that. But in your everyday, it's not something like, say, you're like your auto insurance where, okay, you get pulled over without auto insurance, and then, you know, you're not supposed to be driving. You're not supposed to be on the road. So there's an immediate, like, monthly aspect to that where... You just kind of have to get that if you're going to be on the road, but you can continue to live life without life insurance. Um, and, and you don't necessarily, especially if you're relatively healthy, you don't feel that for a while. So, uh, you may not feel that for a while. Um, but so that, that hits me on from multiple facets, how important that is. So thanks for sharing that, man. Matt, tell me, tell me, uh, how you, if at all, how you thought about like finances growing up, uh, and how does that, how is that different? How is it different than today? Uh, growing up, finance was really a basis for uh, my rearing from my father's point of view. Uh, every Saturday morning, we did two things. We went and got our hair cut, and then we drove around because at that time, it wasn't like you could pay your bills electronically. So you went around to all of these different locations and you dropped bills off. That was a foundational piece. Aaron Day. You got to do it. I mean, it, it's important. And, and still today, you know, um, being presentable in public, uh, especially on Wall Street now, is, is very important. But also uh, correct stewardship around finances is really how I uh, guide my life in many respects. So that was my first introduction into the importance of finance and what taking care of that financial business afforded you when you maybe needed to purchase a car, when you needed to purchase a house, or you had those things that you needed. If you had handled your business credit-wise up until that point, you wouldn't find yourself in a situation where you were unable to um, get the things that you needed if you didn't have the cash for it right away. And that kind of goes into the credit part of finance. But that's really my introduction into finance and it's uh, relative importance to all of our lives. Wow. That, yeah, that's, that, that's really helpful. And, and that, that hits too. I think uh, I, I always like being with my dad growing up, but like I didn't always enjoy going to run the errands. So if it was Aaron Day, we're going to the bank, we're going to this place. And yeah, it's, it's so true. That was before we were doing all this stuff online. That's, that's, that's really funny. I think um, for me, uh, everything was through the, like this is going to be the case for really any pastor's kid, but really if somebody grows up in the church too, uh, is everything is through the lens of the church, you know? And so uh, when we're talking about bivocational pastoring and you know you're not necessarily uh receiving a salary for for being at the church but you're giving all this time and you're cared for in other ways for sure um but i think being rich is not the goal you're just trying to be a good steward of what you have so that means you need to know how much your family has to be able to take care of your family and so in that way we were never um you're never wealthy or like middle class or anything like that but i think 
I never had doubts about what, like if there would be, you know, food on the table for the next meal. So in that way, I was always, always secure in that. Everybody around me wasn't, you know, I had friends who, who weren't in that space. But for me, it was, I knew when my dad was working, it was time to hit the bills. It was time to, uh, you know, speak to this. And then so much of that, I don't know if officially it was, but unofficially, so much of it was earmarked for how you were going to help members of the church too, you know? And so I think, um, uh, we don't win if we don't all win, um, was, was kind of, was kind of clear through the church. And you can say that spiritually because you're caring for your brother and sister, but also just very practically and socially, we were not looking to say, Hey, we'll take 10 years here in this like low income neighborhood. And then we're going to try to basically move on up, um, and finally get a piece of the pie. I think for us, it was, it was much more, like this, this is where we are. This is where the Lord has called us to be. Uh, this community blesses us and we get to bless the community. And so it was all together, you know? Um, but I knew when my dad was at work in his office, paying bills, doing what needed to be done. So finances was kind of distant. And my oldest sister used to work with my dad as she got older. And that was her, she did that first, but she would learn what he was doing. Um, and even in that, that was nice. And I think that for some, they don't have the, even the context, not all have the context of having two parents who do different things. So my dad handled most of the, most of the finances and records and stuff. Um, and, and if you, if somebody doesn't have a husband or doesn't have a wife, doesn't have two parents in the home, that also feels like that plays a role in, in how finances are going to be managed. You know, who's going to be responsible for this? Who's going to hold the line? Who's going to say, no, the family needs this right now. You really need that, those dual voices. And not everybody has that. So, so it was, it wasn't central and talking about it, like, Hey, make sure you say, but it was like responsible. More of mine was connected to like being a man, being a man in the sense of one day, you're going to have a family to take care of in order to do that. You need to be, you need to be wise with what you're doing. So you don't need to be taught. There's nobody for you to be talking to. Why would you be talking to a girl at this point? You ain't got nothing. So <laughs> that was basically the, you know, it was just responsible. You're supposed to have and do this. So, you know, I think there, I'm sure there are parallels with all of that, but it's interesting to hear how how that all informs like who we are with that today. Yeah. <clears throat> um, now, Matt, you had a, a couple of questions that you wanted to ask um, in here when, when we were talking about this before we recorded. And um, I think one of them that you hit, I'd love for you guys to, to speak to this first. Uh, the first question I think you had is, how, in your experience, has the church succeeded in relaying the message of godly stewardship around finance? And how has the church, in your experience, failed? Uh, maybe, Matt, do you want to you answer your own question first from your own perspective? And then Drew will jump to you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think as, as far as, uh, and I, I can really only speak to you know, my home church or my local church as far as the church, but in my first experience, around church and finance. I think it was really positive. Um, we had a leader who was an incredible steward over money. Um, we had business meetings fairly regularly to talk about the church's money. And um, from the time I was maybe around five to 10 years old, we were preparing to build a new church. So there was constant conversation about the money that was coming in and how this was going to help uh, build a new church. We also didn't really have a, a very flashy leader. So you kind of saw not only where the money was going, but where the money wasn't going. 
which was really, really important to me. Um, Not even so much from the things that he said specifically about money. And there were a lot of things that he said about money. But all of that goes out the window. Not all of it, but a lot of it. When the visual doesn't match the audio, so to speak. Uh, and I'm just thankful that my uh, initial lead into church and finance was such great leadership and stewardship. Um, I'm, I would think that that doesn't apply everywhere, but it worked really well for me. And I know I can't be the only one. So that would be uh, in how my local church really succeeded and i know we probably don't hear that enough we we hear quite often about how churches or the church is failing uh i'm blessed to say that i had a a great initial um experience with my local church around its stewardship of finance that's that's good and refreshing to hear what about you drew you know what i actually had a very healthy uh, experience uh, as well. Um, you know, sadly, a couple of weeks ago, my pastor from back home in Philly passed away. Mm. And uh, I went on Facebook to give my little tribute, you know, and um, I was thinking about all the times that, you know, he was actually a neighbor of mine too. He lived directly across the street from me. And when the ice cream truck would come by, if I was outside and he was outside, he would always reach into his pocket and give me some money for the ice cream truck. I remember on a couple occasions him slipping me a 10. Oh, not a, a whole 10? A 10. Listen, man. <laughs> Woo! I'll buy the truck. Ten. I'll take the truck. You can buy the whole truck, man. <laughs> Ten dollars, man. I'm I'm rich, and uh, and so and so I went to post this sweet memory uh, on on Facebook, and as I'm preparing it, I think I went away and maybe refreshed the screen or something, and another guy on my block who went to the same church posted the same exact tribute. Dang. Yeah, man. So he beat me to the punch, and so it's one of these one of these things where you feel like you're special, you feel like you're loved. Uh, but then tribute after tribute of intimate, um, intimate like stories of Pastor Poiser giving of himself, giving of his finances to people in the church. And it reflects throughout that generosity transcended the church. So the church mm. was the most giving congregation. Um, and I've lived in five states, two countries out of all the places that I've been. Out of all the places that I've worshipped, no church has been more generous than that church. And so in terms of giving and um, being a steward of the, the resources, the financial resources that God has given you, I think I had a great, healthy um, upbringing. And I think it's reflected in the way that I give today. And uh, I'm sure um, the the church could have been stronger on on teaching certain financial concepts. Um, but overall I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, for what's been instilled in me from pastor Poyser and in, in that church. Wow. What a legacy, man. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. 
Thanks for sharing. I'm that. happy to. Yeah, you, you you realize that as as you get older, you feel. That. I remember talking with you when you were in the barber chair a couple weeks ago. You realize that as you get older, you you have uh, people who are markers in your life, you know. And sometimes they're they're living markers, and that's how you you want to give people their flowers when they're still when they're still living. Absolutely. Uh, but it's well important. To, but it's important to still remember them, even even when they pass on to be their impact remains. And I think that's really cool. Um, yeah, I hadn't even thought about sharing that. I'm like that. That's true too. For for my family, it felt like. Uh, you know, we didn't have like an allowance or anything, but if you happen to come across a couple of dollars, any, at any time those could be called upon. So if I had, you know, man, I might have eight whole dollars in my pocket, a five and three singles in a, in a wallet. That was the most useless wallet in the world. But, uh, if we were, you know, maybe going to McDonald's or going to something, it might be, or right, do you have any money? And I'd be like, uh, I mean, technically yes, but <laughs> But I, I'm like, man, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold on to this. I'm investing it. I'm investing, <laughs> holding on to it. So uh, I think I would feel that, and the money would just come in different ways. We used to get paid for a short stint. The young, the the boys at our church would, we would uh, clean the clean the church on Saturdays, and so we would get we would get paid for that. Um, and then I don't know why, but the the we stopped. We would seriously stopped getting paid. <laughs> I don't know why. Probably because we weren't doing that good of a job. But <laughs> um, but I think uh, that was like that, that was how I was thinking about money. Was you're trying to trying to hold on to it for sure, you know. Um, and I think uh, uh, outside of my just main sphere, we had our like kind of like our sister church in in Evanston, Illinois. And giving was a huge part there because so much of it was giving to missions. My parents got married and served under that ministry for years under the late, great Bishop Carlos L. Moody Sr. And uh, he was the international bishop of, bis international bishop of missions as well. Um, and so we were always connected to there are people who need our support in so many different ways, including financial support, right? And who support us too and, you know. And so that was big. And then there were a few people in that church who who gave a lot. I had people in my own church who were always giving to uncles, you know, people, deacons who were who were giving me a few bucks here and there. But if you weren't careful, every now and then, Mother Hollins, uh, Mother Cammy, and my godfather, shout out to Uncle Tony. I'm going to make sure you listen to this episode. Uh, they used to, you know, my Uncle Tony used to give me a few dollars and be like, hey, I need you to hold this for me. <laughs> like, like I was, like I was a, like I was a bank. It was just he was gonna come back for it later, and I'm like, you want me to hold? Sometimes it would be five, ten. You want me to hold twenty dollars? Oh man, the return on this is incredible. You know, so I learned generosity. I learned how selfish I could be, but I also learned how sometimes I want to come in big and be like, you know what, Dad? No, I got it today. We'll take two Big Macs. <laughs> so uh, I think that's that's a that's a, a big piece. Um, for me growing up too. So I think the church was modeling that in a lot of ways. I think sustainability in finance was probably not as talked about like long-term um, kind of setting up. If you talked about that more often than not, that might feel a little bit like you're, I don't know, maybe not trusting God as much. Um, nobody, no, I don't know anybody who said that, you know, but I think that was kind of the feeling was you were going to trust God as well, sometimes implicitly, not explicitly. An implicit message with that could feel like uh just trust god you know or you know you you put all this faith in you know in um in money or in what you hope for and that's not going to be what sustains you you know which is true but that doesn't mean that you're not supposed to be a good steward of what you have you know so i think i think 
those are, those are big pieces in which my church also succeeded and, and probably just could have done more with what we had. I feel like they did a pretty good job. Um, simplicity of finance that you mentioned at the, you mentioned at the top, Matt, you at, you say we, we have a simplicity of the gospel. Why do we need a simplicity of finance? I would think because it gets complicated and feels daunting and intimidating sometimes, but why do we need that? And tell us more about your own simplicity of finance statement. Also, I want you guys to unmute too, because uh, I, uh, I we're kind of laughing and having side, and I want I want I want the, I want everybody to be able to hear that. Yeah, um, I think a simplicity of finance phrase is necessary for many of the same reasons that a, a simplicity of the gospel phrase is necessary. I think, and in so many respects, we have this central focus that over time we endeavor to really expound on the knowledge, the depth, the breadth, and, and everything that the topic has to offer, whether it's religion or the Bible or finance. And, and sometimes in our endeavor to really get into and, and really fill out the totality of the topic, I feel like we lose a very basic focus as if um, the basic uh, delivery of the topic is somehow beneath us after we've, you know, been in uh, the topic, been in church for so long or been around money for so long. The basics are beneath me. I'm past that. And unfortunately, we can never lose sight of the individuals who are coming up behind us that maybe didn't have the great foundations that we all just spoke about. It was so great to hear about your your home church, Andrew and, and Steve. You know, I, I know your dad personally. So it, it was so great to hear about that foundation, that basis. But for the individuals who maybe came up in church that didn't get the message of generosity, that didn't understand how important it was um, to be generous, how important it was to save, how important it was to be a good steward. I feel like those simple bites, those simple messages are so important to really not only help lay a foundation for those that didn't have it, but maybe recalibrate as we've kind of sailed a little further away from the shores of the basics and our delivery of these topics, if, if that makes sense. It, it does feel like insurance and stuff can get complicated. I guess everything you can't just sum up and just do like a quick, a quick notes version. You actually have to do the work. So I'm not asking to be like, let's just give me the, give me the highlights, but I guess it's kind of what I'm asking for, but, <laughs> but like <laughs> if people are like wondering where to start, you know, in that same way, the simplicity of it all, you know, this is why you need this. This is why this is important. This sort of saving up for a rainy day, preparing for what you do and don't know. Tell me how that can be. How do you, how do you simplify that? For, for for clients or for yourself, Drew? You know, I think I try to frame it. Well, first of all, let me let me kind of share how they how most people see it. Most people see insurance as a legal requirement, right? Like mm -hmm. for purchasing a car in order to drive off the lot, you need insurance or they they see it um, just say, yeah, exactly as a means to an end of purchasing the home. Um, it's a commodity to most people, which in some cases, in, in reality, actually is technically a commodity, but it shouldn't be commoditized, if you will. 
Um, but basically, it is it is simple. It can be simplified. And I think people should frame insurance as just the transfer of risk of financial loss. And it's one way to manage risk. So even before talking about insurance, you have to talk about risk management. You know, first, I guess you could really start off by talking about what risk is. You know, risk is the likelihood that there's going to be some loss. And if there is a loss, it might be costly. It might be financially costly. And so there are ways to manage your risk. There are three ways. You can either keep the risk or retain the risk. You can say, I'm not going to worry about this. If I have this loss, I'm just going to come out of pocket, you know, you know, for the money. If someone gets hurt on my property or whatever, if someone gets hit by my car, I will retain that risk. Um, obviously, that's it's not legal to to not have insurance in most states. But another another way to manage risk other than retaining it is transferring the risk. You can transfer the risk to an insurance company. And that's what insurance is. It's the transfer of risk. Um, you're transferring the risk to the insurance company and you're exchanging a premium, an amount of money, and then they're saying we're going to pay for any bodily injury you might cause or any property damage you might cause, essentially. Um, and that's for pr- what we call property and casualty insurance. Talk about simplifying it. <laughs> I think I, I, I might be making it a little complicated here, but <laughs> but 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 basically, it's all about risk management. And that's really what it comes down to. Insurance is the transfer of the risk of financial loss. And that's and 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 and, and you can gotcha. and and you can build on top of that. You know, there, it gets more complex, um, but it, it 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 doesn't have to be. And if you, I mean, I always tell people it's good to stay with your agent. It's good to stay with your agent and ideally engage with them over time because there are things that that you wouldn't be able to foresee in terms of like what risks might be there. Um, because you're, you're, you're not a professional, but, but the reality is it's not as complex. It's not as vague. It's not as like intricate as a lot of people think when they start engaging with it. So, so let's, let's swing back to generosity for a minute. So Christians are not the only people that are generous, just like non-Christians are not the only people who are selfish. (laughs) Uh, so, um, but I digress. So I think I'm, I'm curious other than just saying, hey, I want to look out for people. I want to have this collective sense of identity. This feels admirable. This feels noble to like look out for other people, not just win myself. But, you know, we see that we see that in, in athletes. You know, there's some athletes who are really selfish and they just want theirs. But then we also see professional athletes who are like, I want to spread the wealth. I want everybody to get paid. I want everybody to get the ball. I want everybody to do that. So that's not an inherently that's not only only it's not just for Christians. Right. So what is a distinctive, and it can be along the lines of generosity, but is it just the why we're generous? Uh, but at, at how does being a Christian specifically inform how you think about insurance, how you think about finance, how you think about the future and yourself and others? My general philosophy um, on life is that God has created us in his image to love him, to walk with him, to cultivate the earth, to produce fruit to glorify the Father in heaven, to manifest the kingdom. And so we're stewards in everything that we have, everything we've been given, including our finances, our abilities to make money. Um, Everything that we have um, is supposed to be um, spent to that end. Um, And so that's, that's 
how I think about every resource and finance is just one of those resources. As far as generosity goes, when I think about um, John 3.16 and it says that God loved the world so much that he gave and we often focus on what he gave because Jesus Christ was very, very important. But even just taking the piece of that he gave, his loving compelled him to give. And if that is my basis for uh, a path, if that is my foundation, looking at my creator and acting as he acted and doing as he did, my love, if it's that soul love, in many respects should compel me to give. Um, and if it doesn't, then I probably have to do some soul searching on, on what exactly uh, my relationship with the Father is and am I carrying out my life down here on this earth in a way that's reflective of him. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you guys summed up most of the, I think, how I how I, how I look at things now, or is old. You guys are. I know Matt. At least you do the the old um old gospel gospel group uh, commissioned. Um, love isn't love. You drew. You know that too. Um, love isn't love till you've given it away. And um, which I don't know if that was a redo of a non Christian song or you you never know what the origins of these. But that was my exposure to it. Was love isn't love till you've given it away. And so. Um, I think that if we really believe, you know, well, you money, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you when you die. You know, all of this stuff to me, that stewardship piece comes that well, you might as well steward it well to the point where, um, and it doesn't mean you can't enjoy it as well, but the maximum amount of people can enjoy it while you're alive and, and while, and once you're gone and by enjoy, I don't just mean spend it. I mean, uh, experience security. You know, because most I, I feel like uh, at least in the U.S., I feel comfortable speaking for it. Many of the people who are speaking to, you know, all speaking in a, maybe in a more maybe more fundamentalist lens about money or about justice, about things that can seem like distractions on Earth. They're like, hey, all of it's going to burn at the end of the day. Christ is coming back. Just keep your eyes on the eternal. Um, but as we've said many times on this podcast, we already have more than enough evidence to not only suggest, but demand that the now matters too, that right. Jesus actually cares about the temporal. You know, uh, if, if he didn't, why take on flesh? So the incarnation, I digress. So that already is, is settled. So we kind of having that piece or having that inform our lives get to see how we are irrevocably tethered, as I like to say, uh, to other people. So that can mean my immediate other people, my family. That can mean um, people that I haven't met yet, but that, that, that are in need of assistance that could be all of those different things. So I think, that, that, I think that's, a, that's a pretty big hit. I also think just like the church having money, not like rolling in it, but the church having resources has been a big model. Like, where Jesus was going, Jesus wasn't working a nine to five and then healing people after hours. So who, you know, what are the disciples doing? You got these grown men that are going around in ministry for three years. What are, how are they being supported? And it was by men and women who were, who were having where they would stay, um, who were able to support them. So I, I think that that's really key too. You see very similarly with Dr. King, who was a pastor. You know, I know we would call him Reverend King and Dr. King, but I think that we see him so much as an activist that we see that 
we, I think we miss sometimes that that model of what it was like to be cared for, the, the meals that he would have in people's homes, um, the, who supported his travel. He was not making money to support his family. He didn't, he didn't die rolling in it, you know? And so um, I think the church being able to support people who have different callings is, is, a, is a pretty key uh, piece that everybody can play a part in. Maybe you do kind of play more of the benefactor piece because you, the Lord has blessed you in this certain position. Um, maybe you are more of the prophetic voice. And so that doesn't, society don't like you like that. So they ain't paying you like that. And so you need the, the body to support you in different ways. So it all does feel pretty connected to me. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, I think, uh, I, I, there's so many other questions. I want to, I want to make sure we get to tips because, and, and, in, t in, in sessions like this, where we're trying to have this understanding, we don't always have something that people can walk away with, something that um, uh, uh, Pastor Crawford Loritz told me years ago. He said to have simple, clear deliverables. Um, and so if you have a meeting, walking out of that meeting, if you don't have something that you can hold on to to say that I'm going to do this today, then you might as well not have had the meeting because it's going to end up discouraging you more than encouraging. Now you've got your hopes up, but you have no way, nothing to hold on to. So we want to get to that towards the end of our episode. So if you're listening, stay with us in that sense. But I do want to go to, it is not lost on me. We happen to be recording this in February, but it could have been any time because I'm black 24 seven, but this is during black history month. But um, we initially wanted to record this in December and January, you know, so it wasn't set for that, but it's not lost on me that we are three black men talking about this. And so, um, uh, and Matt, your, your position in talking about diversity and inclusion, what I often hear is we have to get into the game, get into the game of, this is a capitalist game for, in so many ways, right? Economics matter. So when you think about your socioeconomic status, we think about we want to include people who have oftentimes felt left out or been left out and not of just regular jobs, but out of management positions, out of out of higher areas of influence and financial attainment, you know. So with that in mind, um, I feel like what I have heard before is, well, they're not here. The candidate's not here. We would love to have somebody step into a position, but nobody's nobody's applying for it. Um, on a smaller level, I feel that when it comes to student leadership, when we're recruiting or, you know, in the church, that question feels flawed to me because it feels more like a, your diversity process is supposed to start long before your hiring process does. Um, because you're wondering where the candidates are, where are you? You know, you're not in a space that, that is going to have very many people around. So is it that the people don't exist or is it that like the, the there's a there's a question about the access or the rubric? Um, so that comes to mind as important. I wanted you to maybe kick us off, um, Matt, and just tell us a little bit. How does that influence your work, whether directly or as a passion? A am I often in, in what I'm thinking? Is there what what, what more is there that I need to consider? One of the most important points of diversity and inclusion, especially around the topic of recruiting, is that if the recruiter is not willing to place themselves in the position of being primarily uncomfortable. So for example, if it's a white recruiter and they're not willing to go to an all black conference, be the only white person there and to deliver the story of their firm or who they're hiring for, mm. then the conversation about where the candidate, where are the candidates? The candidates aren't here. 
And you hit it right on the head, Steve. Where are you? If you're not willing to be that uncomfortable person, and and I don't think it's um surprise to anyone that Wall Street is primarily white. And when you go into these offices as a, a person of color, uh, I am a black man. So as a black man going into these offices, in many ways, it can be uncomfortable. And if the individuals who are recruiting, no matter where they are, are not willing to be recruiting, I, I also work in diversity and inclusion. I'm one of the only men on our team. This is not a problem for me. If I want to see diversity truly, then I can't hold on to my position of, oh, well, I'll always be in the dominant number number in something. I may not be in the dominant number ethnically, but I'm in the dominant num- number as far as gender goes. And, and we got to get away from that. So I think that first part mm-hmm. is key. Being willing to be vulnerable and uncomfortable and a lot aren't. And that's why we don't or can't seem to find these candidates that do exist because they're being hired. Also, a very important thing is I kind of see myself driving on a highway and like a tractor trailer and bowling over these barriers because barriers in certain respects do this, these barriers to entry that we, we hear a lot of. And it's so important for people who have the opportunities and the influence to knock over a lot of these barriers. And a lot of it is just extending that olive branch and being vulnerable, as I spoke about earlier, or being in a place that you're not totally comfortable with. I think individuals who aren't familiar with uh, Wall Street or aren't familiar with certain places in higher ed uh, see that. And it translates in a way that they normally don't see. Uh, and it's really important that we have that kind of olive branch extension when we talk about diversity and inclusion. With regard to you know diversity, equity, and inclusion um, work, I'm not very optimistic generally um, that there's going to be too much change just because... It, it would take so much energy, sweat, equity, discomfort um, for people in, in those positions to incorporate people who are culturally different, who are pe- people who have, you know, the traumas that, that um, people of color have, the dispositions, the values, the culture, essentially, that, that uh, people of color have, you know, it's so, I, my mindset around that particularly when i'm talking to people of color and black people like myself is you want to add value you you want to know what is going to sell and like you mentioned it's a capitalistic society and one of the basic um, principles there is is that like if you are actually adding value, someone will buy your product. So what does that mean in the in the corporate setting? Like you, you just got to be great at what you do. Matt, I'm sure is great at what he does. Other otherwise he wouldn't he wouldn't be there. You know. So you know, and that's not to that's not making an excuse for for racism in these contexts. That's just you know as a as a black executive who is busy 
you know, I don't think that a lot of these, you know, white people in power have the heart to, 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 to pursue, and it takes active pursuit. Um, as Matt was saying, you know, I, I, I just don't think I, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not as hopeful there. So my conversation isn't around like, Hey, what should be done? My conversation is like, okay, what does Andrew have to do? What does Matt have to do? What do people of color have to do? So that's, that's my input. I didn't mean to change the subject, but that's kind of my, my thoughts there. And we, and I think it's said often that black, black, being black is not a monolith. And so we could, we, we have individuals that make up a collective. So we have these similar experiences, but if we're going to come to sometimes different conclusions, but oftentimes the same conclusions, but from a different perspective or a, a different vantage point. So that's what more of what I'm hearing here. I think in hearing that, I think a couple of things come to mind. Uh, this is a microcosm of a bigger, of a bigger conversation that has gone on for years. I think within the black community alone, I think now it aged well. So if you think about who won, whose message won uh, the civil rights during the civil rights era, uh, 50, let's just, let's, let's snapshot it at the fifties and sixties. And so King is sort of the face of that, but there are tons of ministers, tons of activists who are speaking into that. There was also ministers that were not feeling uh, optimistic about the government being willing to change or feeling like we needed to put trust in government to change because they were primarily white people because it was a system. And so um, now I will say that his, from a historical lens, that was on, they were on, they would have been like more on the losing side because King side is seen as having won. Um, but the, but you have to define winning because the struggle was real and it cost, it cost King his life. And it's cost so many others uh, their well-being. Um, but obviously I'm happy that the, uh, that the effort was done because I like having the option to say that you can't keep me out of your school regardless of where you are, you know? So I'm glad the government got involved on that way. I'm glad that power was challenged in that. But I, I do know that there is a much more, uh, less optimistic outlook that sometimes informs how we go about race and socioeconomics in general. And I, I think the only thing that I would add to what you're saying, Drew, is I hear, so I think for you, you like, you keep working because you don't, you're not looking you're not counting on this thing changing like this. So I, I get, and I think that pe more people should feel like I'm not going to count on it to be like, oh, it has to change or I won't function. But I think I like the idea of me moving and still trying to push the industry to move too. Because if I don't, and I don't have those conversations or have those efforts, you're not saying this. Drew is not saying this. But I think that what comes out of that is like, if you have good work, then people will hire you. So that suggests that the people, that because these spaces are not primarily filled by people of color and women, mm -hmm. that their work just isn't good enough. And yes. yep. that's, that's nonsense. And so, you know, so I, I think that that is a unfortunate result that comes out that I just feel like has to be navigated. So we're not saying, you know, basically like, Hey, if you put the work, yeah. if you put the work in, you know, or pull yourself up by your exactly. bootstraps, then you'll be good. And I know that's not what you're saying. I just want to delineate that because I think that that's an important part. Said. That's exactly right. That's not what I'm saying. And the work is important. The work is important and it does resonate with people. Um, but sadly, uh, it tends to resonate with people when there's a George Floyd. Right. And so. And it did. Mm. Recently, yeah. Um, yeah. And it did. And it did. And, and it's good. Um, but yeah, the reality is, I mean, the sort of sort of social sweep to push the DEI work um yeah it's on the back of of 
you know, Ahmad Arbery, who, you know, who obviously the trials are going on around, um, uh, whether, whether at what, you know, what we know to be true is whether these people were racist. So, you know, but I, again, I, I think, and particularly in capitalist society, it's, it's about what's expedient for, for you. Um, and so it would be, un, it's unpopular for a lot of these companies to not jump on the bandwagon of DEI. And so like, you, I mean, I'm just, I'm the, I'm the cynic here. And I just don't, I just don't trust, I just don't trust these, you know, these, these big <laughs> corporations, but, um, but yeah, I'm not, and I appreciate you clarifying that, Steve, like, I'm not saying it's, it's a matter of pulling oneself up by their bootstraps. Um, but, you know, whenever, you know, the, the work of DEI is important. Um, I guess Matt is more on the analytic side, but yeah, these things do resonate with, with human beings. And, and, and I know that, you know, especially as the demographic shifts, as more people of color are being represented in America, that's going to be one of the ways that, that we see shift. Yeah. I also think, you know, this is a, this is good work that, that has to be on, that has to be ongoing and you, you, you just commit to staying with it. You're doing the right thing. Uh, we just, I just heard this, like doing the right thing and doing the right next thing. And, and how long do you have to do the right next thing? The answer is forever. You do the next right thing and you keep doing the next right thing. Um, and so uh, I think that that speaks a lot to like this, this kind of work is that, man, if I'm looking for this to suddenly be, well, everybody is represented, every individual and every community is equally represented here. Um, you know, that, that's not what I'm looking to attain. But I, I always, I often liken it to like eating. Like, man, I'm looking, l last night uh, we had a, a banquet on campus. And so I'm like, we, we, we threw down and there was some great food. I'm hungry again. Okay, this is <laughs> this is the next day. All right, I have I have worked out. I just I'm getting ready to finish this episode, and I'm going to eat again. So in the same way that you're you're going to eat, the way you fight for your community, the way you fight for people that you do and don't know, like we got to eat again, and we got to make sure everybody's eating. So I think that is a the next right thing, and doing that forever is this the same with the justice conversation? Is the same for trying to work in inclusion, and and I think even like I, I don't have uh, aspirations of being like. A, a heavy hitter uh, personally, like in the realm of finance necessarily, right? Um, I want to learn as much as I can and we want to get to those tips in a minute here. But like, I also think about like, who is asking these questions? Um, you know, I hate going through, it's poor neighborhoods in general, but it's often black neighborhoods and going through, I don't want to see payday loans. I don't want to see a place where predatory loans are on here. And we, we have these conversations that aren't happening because only the immediate is being taken. You're like, oh, I got a thousand dollars of cash now. This is designed against you. It's literally too good to be true. Um, and so there's so many reasons why we need to talk through even financial literacy, which I think maybe is a, a good transition to maybe move us to the, some of those tips. One, one quick one that comes to mind for me is easy one. Start now. You are going to encounter things that you need and that you want at different sections of at different parts of your life. Don't wait to start the saving process, which we'll get to. Um, before I, I'm trying to learn and, and learn more and more about investing and have been growing, getting smarter and smarter about that. The point is, if I don't have any, if I'm not saving as much as I'm taking in, as much as I'm sending out, as much as I'm spending, basically, 
I'm not going to have money. I'm not going to have enough money. And I think that's a huge part is people are in the red in their own personal spending. And so you have to start there now where you have to stop, stop the hemorrhaging. Um, so that one sticks out to me, the saving and starting today. Don't wait on that. Don't wait till your next paycheck. Even if it's the smallest of margins, you got to start somewhere. You, you hit it, Steve, starting early. I think my favorite interest is compound interest. And the most important factor of compound interest is time. Yeah, the more time you have and, and you know, the younger you are, the more time you'll be able to invest and those investments will grow and compound amongst themselves. Um, so, yeah, starting early, 100%, huge proponent of it. To add to that, you know, you can't get to where you don't know where you're going, right? So you, you have to have a, you have to have a vision, um, you know, so, and how do you get that vision? I mean, it could be looking at people you, you aspire to, to be, um, like, um, in terms of where they are financially. Um, but the bottom line is you have to have a vision and then the questions come like, okay, what did this person do to get there? Or what, practically do I need to do to, to get there? But I, w- I would say it definitely starts with uh, with a vision and then revisiting that vision, revisiting that vision, revisiting your goals, so on and so forth. Just, just really quickly, I was thinking, and we talked about this before, how a lot of times when we want to save and acquire more wealth, we always think about, you know, when we'll make more money or the money that we don't have. And you know me, Steve, I'm always thinking about the money that I do have. And my quote is always, everybody wants to make more. Nobody wants to spend less. And I am always in a position where I am willing, underline and bold willing to revisit whether or not I need this thing that I am about to invest my money into. And it could be just something as simple as you know an expensive dinner or just like do i really need this right now and that's a very small example but i feel like that willingness translates to a mindset um we spoke previously about how jesus had mentioned in luke 9 23 when he says you know if if anyone wants to be my follower he must give up his own way or he must deny himself And I feel like self-denial is kind of what I'm alluding to when being willing to uh, decide whether or not this thing that you're going to spend money on right now, not the money that you're going to make in two years, but the money you have right now, if it's worth spending your money on that thing right now. And I feel like having those conversations with yourself will allow you some more dollars to maybe invest or just save and put to the side for a rainy day. So, Matt, you mean to say that we're stewards of the money we have right now, too? Right now. Right now. That money that you have. Oh, man. I mean, because if you don't do it with the money you have right now, you're not going to do it with the money you get two years from now. That's just not how it Well works. said. I saw this meme uh, recently that, that this sort of deny, deny yourself piece made me think of this, Matt. I saw this meme that said uh, the, the quote, I'm going to treat myself. And it's, you know, I think it's, I think it came from Parks and Rec years ago where it was like, treat yourself, you know, <laughs> treat yourself. So the meme says, I'm going to treat myself. And then it says, me, 
who has rarely, <laughs> if ever, denied myself anything. <laughs> and I'm like, that is so true, man. That that is what happens when we're like, you know what? I deserve this. Do you? I don't, I'm not. I'm not sure. And sometimes I feel like that too. I've been like, oh, I haven't eaten out in a while. Like I'm, I'm going, I'm fixing to, I'm fixing to destroy some Chick Fil A or something like that, you know. And then I'm like. You did just have Chipotle two days ago. You didn't even think about that. <laughs> but apparently you've been denying yourself for hours and you can't you can't do without. So I think keeping that picture of what am I actually spending? How often do I log into my banking app or my bank account online and see what am I actually spending? Because it's almost, in my experience, it's almost always more than what you think it is. Be like, oh, I forgot about that Amazon purchase though. I forgot about this thing. So I actually have to account for that. And if I don't have a category for that in my finances, that's huge. So dipping that into the next point of denying yourself sometimes and saying, Telling yourself no is sometimes, or not sometimes, always looking at what you actually bring in, what you actually spend, and having that in categories. You know, so I have a certain amount that's for car repairs. I have a certain amount that's for this and that. Woo woo. And I think that's been helpful for me in like building it. I also just want to add. I think people have to give. I think this idea of I'll be generous. This is I don't know who says this, but I think this is kind of implicitly while you're in a season of saving, if you're actually under if you have a lot of self-control and you're not being super impulsive and you're making good decisions, but you're barely making you're barely breaking even. There's a feeling that you can't really be generous right now until you until later. Now, I can't go out and buy, some, buy somebody a car right now. I can't go off and do this thing. But I do think this is where the dying to yourself as Christians comes out uniquely to be like. I don't necessarily get the option to say, when I'm rich, then I'm going to start giving back to the community. I think there is a, I'm getting involved now. I am seeing where God can use me now, seeing the ways in which people have looked out for me. When I was in college, I had people that supported me in doing like ministry and missions and stuff. So I think for me, a big part of the last few years has been students as they graduate and they're doing the same thing that I was doing a little while ago. How can I give um, and support them in addition to giving to my local church, things like that. So not suspending giving just because you're not where you want to be financially, I think is also important. I think I would also add just having an accountability partner, whether that is a spouse, a friend, somebody that you trust, somebody who can help you to say no. If you know that you're naturally a more uh, impulsive person or impulsive spender, um, or you just know that you have a weak point. So if you know that like, man, it's not a good idea for me to go to the mall because I'm not going to I'm going to I'm going to spend this on on what I look like. Uh, I'm going to spend this on on anything that just really interests me. I'm going to spend this on multiple streaming platforms. I have if you have maybe you have Netflix and you have Hulu and you have Peacock and you have all of these different ones. How many shows and movies can you watch like in a month? So, you know, maybe you have to suspend some and and not hemorrhage that cash for something that you may or may not even be using as much as you should be, you know? If you are in debt or you're going through right now, you didn't get into debt or build bad bad financial practices overnight. So if that's true, that stands to reason that you're not going to get out overnight. So taking the time to say, maybe it's just by 50 bucks. Maybe I just cleared. Maybe I'm just in the green. It takes time to do that and be patient with yourself, even if maybe you did spend a little bit more than you should have this month. Um, try to make that up. Um, so being disciplined and having grace, I think, is, is and patience is really, really important. I, I think giving and being generous is a discipline, like in and of itself, because it forces you to uh, basically factor that into your monthly budget or however your, your budget frequency is. 
And I will definitely say that I, I am an avid tither. I tithe, I give offering, and I have given the the type of money I never even thought I would I would see um, as far as tithing goes. And I've been more than willing to give it because if I can't tithe on where I'm at right now, when I'm at wherever God will take me to, I won't be able to tithe on that higher number either. Um, so yeah, discipline, patience, 100%. Matt, you're known for being generous. And I think there's a, I think both of us are kind of maybe known as being frugal at the same time. We don't want to not, <laughs> you're laughing, <laughs> you, you don't want to be seen as stingy just because you're wise with what you have. So that's a, that's really key. I, I think, I think you model that well. Hey, here it is right here, man. Proverbs eleven twenty five. the generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. That is not just a proverb. That is a promise. Um, I live by that. I was just going to say that community is such an asset. You know, when you have like-minded people who are sharing the same um, ideals around finance and, you know, outside of your circle, you might see people or feel that people think you're being stingy or people think they're being cheap or whatever, but like within your community, you, you have an understanding. And I think there's confidence in that, in that community. I think that's a blessing that you guys have that. And that's something that I think a lot of people should pursue. Thank you for sticking with us for our longest episode yet, as well as one with some audio issues. We hope you enjoyed it. Finances, as Matt mentioned, are a great tool and a terrible guide. And even in working through today's episode, we hope that ultimately your conclusions on money and wealth are biblically informed. So maybe in your spare time, go back to Jesus' encounter with the young rich man in Matthew 19, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, or the parable of the rich man in Lazarus in Luke 16, and more. As with every Tessera or episode on this podcast, the hope is to theologically and practically support the body of Christ as we pursue integrity, as we pursue Christ. But what do we miss on today's episode? What do you disagree with? Because we love drama. And as we prepare for season three of Tesserai, let us know what you'd like to talk about, who you'd like to hear from, what episodes we should revisit, what part of the mosaic we can examine next. As usual, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, be a good steward of your finances. And, well, you should do that for the rest of your life, but you get what I'm saying. Thanks again to Matt and Drew, and this has been Tesserai. Tesserai.